Amen. We're going to continue in our series together for the gospel as we look at our vision and mission together here at New City Fellowship. I want to read to you, uh, again, the first part of this vision and mission statement and the second sort of characteristic here in that statement, to join in gospel ministry in Southeast Grand Rapids as a God-glorifying, which we talked about last week, and this week we're going to talk about being a gospel-centered church, God-glorifying and a gospel-centered church. We're going to talk this morning about gospel-centered. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to so Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and we're going to read through to verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, Lord, would speak to your people this morning. Father, we pray that all of us sit under the authority of your Word. You would teach us. You would strengthen our faith. You would do that work in us, making us more like your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray and ask it in his name. Amen. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day, he's coming back. Oh, glorious day. There are, there are of course, many songs like this that seek to capture the core of the gospel message, a message that tells us that God, through the work of Christ, reconciles to himself human beings who were spiritually dead because of their rebellion and sin, forgiving their rebellion and sin on account of his rich mercy and love, restoring them to spiritual life all through the death of his Son and our Lord Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. It has, of course, been the central work of the church to unpack the different aspects of this gospel message to help believers better understand the good news they have received from God, and to help non-Christians see what God is holding out 
to them in that good news. To say, to say that we want to be a church in which our life and ministry together is gospel-centered is not novel. Every individual Christian life is centered on this message. And every church that calls itself a church and truly is, is centered around this message. Doesn't matter if they have it in their vision statement or in their core value statements. If they are a true church of Christ, it is because of this defining message of the good news of God coming in mercy and love to save human beings from the wages of their sin, which is death, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But here's the question for us this morning as we seek to think through what being a gospel-centered church means for us as God's people. Why does Paul tell the church in Ephesus what he almost certainly told them while he was with them? Remember, Paul spent a great deal of ministry labor in Ephesus and would likely have stayed longer had he not been forced to leave on account of how his preaching of the gospel was disrupting the city's economic and political life. Side note, if our preaching of the gospel isn't getting under the city's skin, we might want to ask what gospel we are preaching. It's just a side note, but back to the question at hand. Why is Paul telling them again what he most certainly told them while he was with them? Why remind them of the good news he had already preached to them, which they had already received from him? Among the many purposes for which this letter was written, one purpose sticks out to me, and that is our tendency to deviate from the center. That is our tendency to deviate from the center. We have a profound ability, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, of taking God's Word and moving its center to fit around some center that we ourselves have committed ourselves to. I'm going to say that again. We have a profound ability, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, of taking God's Word and moving its center to fit around some center that we have committed ourselves to. Of course, when we move the center, then our conduct also moves to fit around that center. Uh, Jesus often called out the Pharisees on account of this. Think of Jesus, for instance, speaking to the Pharisees about honoring their parents. He says, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the word of God void by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things like this you do. You move the center, and then your conduct moves with it. And I want to suggest we can do this with the gospel too, which is why Paul starts Ephesians 4 in this way. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. What calling? Well, the calling he spent the first three chapters unpacking, a calling centered around the good news of God's saving work in Jesus. Being gospel-centered, New City, means keeping the gospel-centered. Being gospel-centered means keeping the gospel-centered. It means believing 
and living out that gospel in all our life and all of our ministry together. And what I want to do this morning is unpack for us the fruit, the benefits of that gospel as Paul lays it out in these verses, helping us to see some of the facets of that good news we are called to live out together. So what is the fruit? What are the benefits of the gospel we are called to center our life and ministry together around as a community? Well, that gospel, first of all, brothers and sisters, uh, is a gospel of a great reversal, a great reversal. Listen again to Paul's words. When you were dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then those two words that we love in the Scriptures, but God. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The gospel at its heart is a great reversal. It's a story of a great reversal. It's a reversal that most people can only conceive of in the world of TV and theater or the big screen. Yet for those of us who are Christians, we know that this reversal has actually happened in the real world. People who were once dead are walking around alive. (laughs) Because of Jesus, people who were in a real grave are now walking around in the land of the living. And while that reversal from death to life is a spiritual one, It is no less real than if someone had come out of a literal grave. Indeed, this spiritual reversal from death to life is a guarantee of a bodily reversal from death to life that will come when Christ returns to this world and makes all things new. And when Paul says dead, he means dead. He means no longer alive, spiritually speaking. We were dead in our trespasses and sins that is no longer controlled by commitment to God's law, but by our rebellion against those laws. We were following the one who Paul describes as the eon of this world, the one whose practice characterizes this world, the prince of the power of the air, the one who rules over the evil spirits of this world, the spirit that is at work in those bound to disobedience, the one who motivates those who live in rebellion against God. We were living out our own passions, making our desires and our thoughts central to our living. We were given over to the pursuit of our own happiness apart from God. We were dead. We were dead. And people who don't believe in Jesus, who don't accept the good news of God's salvation from death, who don't live in light of that gospel, are people who don't believe that they are dead. But those of us whom God has enabled to see that death, as Paul describes it, who have put our faith in Jesus, have had our circumstances reversed. We are now those who have been made alive together with Christ. And what is the character of that new life that we now have with Christ? It is a life grounded in God's love and mercy that is now one of resurrection 
and enthronement. We are those over whom death no longer has victory. Its power has been broken over us. This is why even in this life where we continue to struggle against our sin, we now have the power of Christ at work in us through the Spirit to put to death the deeds of death. But not only this, we have now been restored to the dignity of being sons and daughters of God. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, a seat that belongs to him alone, he did not leave us behind. There are some other chairs <laughs> before that throne now, seats that Jesus purchased through his own blood. And those seats belong to those same folk who John saw in Revelation 7, that multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language, those of whom that elder with John spoke, saying, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Paul speaks in the past tense when he says, we were seated with Christ in the heavenly places, because although we are not physically there yet, the seats belong to us. It's a done deal. There's a chair before the throne with my name on it. There's a chair before the throne with your name on it. There's a chair before the throne with the names of all of those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who sat down at the right hand of the Father laid out some seats for all of God's people before the throne of God. <laughs> the gospel, the gospel is the story of a great reversal <laughs> from death to life. The call here, brothers and sisters, is to believe what God says about us who are in Christ. It's to believe that we are no longer in the realm of the spiritually dead, but are now alive spiritually in Christ. It is to believe that we have been raised with him and that we are now citizens of heaven through faith in Jesus. The reason this faith, brothers and sisters, is important is because we hear other messages. There are other messengers messengers in this world that want us to doubt what God says about us in Christ. Your sin nature is one of those messengers. When you sin, your sin nature will cry out to you that that is who you are, that you are nothing but a sinner, and that you can't escape that reality. And the goal, of course, in that message is to get you to give up and to give in and to give yourself over to that sin. Yet you are not what that messenger proclaims to you. You are alive now in Christ. You are a new creation in Him, and sin no longer has power over you. The world is also a messenger, seeking to cast doubt in our hearts about what God has said about us in Christ. And the world's message comes in a myriad of forms from a focus on materialism, focus on the individualism, to the lie that there is no God at all, the world seeks to pull us away 
from the message that we have heard in the gospel. Don't believe the lies of the world, the lies that the world tells you about your existence, about your purpose, about your future. You were created in God's image, rescued from a life of meaningless to a life of purpose and bringing God's glory to Him. And you have a glorious future, free from every form of sin and death. Satan is also a messenger, an accuser of God's people who will seek to tell us all kinds of lies to get us to follow him in his rebellion against God. But we are no longer under his spell, no longer under his authority. We now have the power through faith in Christ to resist him. So resist him by speaking the word of God against all his lies over yourself and over your brothers and sisters in Christ, to join in gospel ministry in Southeast Grand Rapids as a God-glorifying, gospel-centered church means believing this good news over ourselves and over our brothers and sisters in Christ. You are no longer dead. You are alive because Jesus died, rose again from the dead, that you might be filled with God's life. The gospel, the gospel is the story of a great reversal. It's also the story of a great presentation. A great reversal, a great presentation. Paul says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The gospel, to put it plainly, is God's show. The gospel, to put it plainly, is God's show. From start to finish, the gospel is the the display of the power and glory of God. In the gospel, the mercy of God is on display, not giving the human community what it deserves on account of its rebellion against him. In the gospel, the love of God is on display, showing compassion toward human beings weighed down by the consequences of their sin and rebellion against him. In the gospel, the power of God is on display, rescuing human beings from the power of death. In the gospel, the grace of God is on display bestowing undeserved favor on human beings, seating them with his son in the heavenly places in the gospel. God is showing off for the host of heaven and for the subsequent ages the greatness of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ. There is a boast in the gospel, but it ain't ours. There's a boast in the gospel, but it ain't ours. It's God's boast. Paul says, it is not our work that is on display such that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look at us. No, the gospel is the work of God for which we can only lift our voices and say, look at God. Indeed, even our faith, even our faith in what God has done is a work of God, empowered by Him. And here's why this is important for us. When we look at the church, we sometimes only see its flaws, its imperfections its failures, its sins. I mean, at different points in times in history, those flaws, those imperfections, those failures and sins are glaring. 
They can't be overlooked because they shine so brightly. But for Paul, the church isn't a presentation of God's kindness and grace because of its beauty, but rather because in and through the church, God displays His beauty, the beauty of one who extends kindness and grace not to righteous people, but to unrighteous ones, not to whole people, but broken ones, not to exalted people, but humbled ones, not to flawless people, but flawed ones, not to perfect people, but imperfect ones, not to sinless people, but sinful ones. And, and, his, and this kindness, this grace, isn't just a kindness and grace that accepts us as we truly are, flawed and imperfect and unrighteous and sinful, but one that is committed to what Paul will describe in Ephesians 5 when he speaks to the church of marriage, saying this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. My hope for myself in all my imperfection and sin, and my hope for the church in all its imperfection and sin is not rooted in my confidence in myself or in my confidence in other Christians. I have lived long enough to see Christians give themselves over to all kinds of foolish and wicked behavior. No, my confidence isn't in the church, and it isn't in myself. It's in the Father and the Son and the Spirit who loves the church. My confidence, my confidence is in the Godhead's faithful commitment to present the church from age to age as the display of the unmatched love, power, kindness, and grace of Almighty God. It's not about us or what we're doing. It's about what God has bound Himself to do on behalf of His people. And the call here is to trust God's love for His church. It's to trust that He is working in her and for her to make her a beautiful display of His power and glory in the world. And we can be down. We can be down on the church because of the failures we see in her, the way she has not lived up to her status as God's bride. But I want to tell you something this morning. God loves His church. I'll say it again. God loves His church. And in His love, He has bound Himself to sanctify her, to cleanse her, so that He might present her in splendor without spot or wrinkle. And the call here is not to trust our own assessment of the church more than we do God's covenant love for His church. Did you hear me? The call is not to trust our own assessment of God's church above His covenant love for His church. Don't trust in your own assessment of the church more than you do in God's covenant love for her. Our assessments, when they are not tied to God's commitment, can lead us to despair. Our assessments, when they are not tied to God's commitment to His covenant love, can lead us to despair over the church, to despair over the church ever becoming what God says she will be. 
It's right to assess so long as the goal in assessing is to join with God in living and working toward the church becoming what God has declared that she will be. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) It's right to assess so long as the point and goal of that assessment is to join with God in accomplishing His purpose of the church being what He has called her to be. If we are led to despair, I understand that. I understand being so frustrated that you just want to throw your hands up and say, forget it. These folk are hopeless. Moses missed the promised land because he became so frustrated with God's people that he struck out in anger toward them. So I get it, and so did Moses, I presume. (laughs) But God loves his people, a display of his glory throughout the ages. The gospel is a great reversal. (laughs) It's also a great presentation of the power and glory of God to make his church what he has committed himself to making it. But it also is great, a great reversal, a great presentation, a great calling, a great calling. The gospel doesn't just lead to a great reversal and presentation, it leads to a great call. Trespasses and sins, Paul described our conduct, our life conduct in this way. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. Our life in the realm of the dead manifested itself in works that further the cause of death in our lives and in the lives of others. Paul describes in another place in Scripture the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body and mind in this way. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Galatians 5, 19 to 21, I I read that list to emphasize that our life in the realm of the spiritually dead had concrete manifestation in our day-to-day lives, in our day-to-day living. And our spiritual death things that spiritually dead people do. But the God who made us alive, together with His Son, life than the one we lived when we were in the realm of the spiritually dead. He prepared for us a life characterized by what Paul calls good works. And what I love here is that these aren't works that we come up with or works that we accomplish in our own strength. These are works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And they are works done in union with Christ. These good works are empowered by the Spirit of God. So going back to that passage that described the works of the flesh, we read this about the works of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Listen to me this morning. The message of the gospel has a purpose statement attached to it. The message of the gospel has a purpose statement attached to it. 
We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus to walk in these good works in our individual and our corporate lives together. No, the works don't save us. But they do show forth the genuineness of that salvation we profess to have. Beyond this, they also do what our confession of faith tells us in chapter 16. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidence of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, glorify God, whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. People who walk in our doors, people who walk through these doors, should experience believers walking in these good works. And the world around us, watching us, should see these good works reflected among us. No, we are not perfect. Yes, we do fail, and fail miserably at times, to do the good that we are called to. Yet one of the good works that God calls us to walk in is humility. So when we fail, do people see a humble, repentant church or defensive, self-protecting one? Listen to Paul's words again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The call here, brothers and sisters, is to walk in those works that God has prepared for us, to pattern our lives after those good works. Yes, we still have to grapple with the sin that remains in us and among us, but the Spirit of the living God is now in us to help us to repent when we fail and grow in righteousness in every area of our lives. Those who come into our midst should see a people who are walking and growing in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, in self-control. The individuals in the church in Ephesus, I'm going to help you this morning, would have had family and friends, and co-workers, and neighbors who would have known them before they were believers. Say that again. They would have had friends, and family members, and co-workers, and neighbors who would have known them before they came, became believers. They would have known the pattern of their lives when they were spiritually dead. Now that they were believers, their testimony, the testimony of their lives would have demonstrated the truth that something had changed about them, that they weren't the people that their family and friends and co-workers and neighbors once knew them to be. Something changed about them. They were not the people whom those around them remembered them to be. And this would have borne testimony to the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. It would have provided a picture of that new humanity that Jew and Gentile were now becoming in Christ. 
It would have done what the confession states when it speaks of adorning the profession of the gospel. That is to make the gospel more beautiful and more attractive. I love those stories in the book of Acts where we are told that God's people in those early days were having favor with all the people around them. Even people who were not becoming believers looked at the church, looked at those folk who they knew because they worked with them, because they were their family members, because they were their friends, who now looked at the church and said, something's different about those folks. They, 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 they used to be idolaters. They, they, they used to be people filled with anger. They, they, used to be, they used to go to the club with me. They, they, used to, they used to close the club down with me. But, they, but they're no longer doing that. They're, they're, they're not the people that they used to be. They don't, they don't talk like they used to talk, and they don't behave like they used to behave. They, 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 they are now filled with, with some strange joy that I can't explain. They're, they're, they're now doing good to people, and I can't explain. They're now taking their money that they earn, and they're giving it away to help others. Something is different about those folk. And even non-believers, watch this, gave glory to God because of what they saw in the church. Let that be our testimony, New City. Let it be our testimony that there is such good being done done among us that even non-believers will have to say, Something's different about those folk. Something strangely different about the way those people act. Something strangely different about how they treat each other. Something strangely different about how they speak to one another. Something's strangely different about how they, how they act toward outsiders. Let it not be. Let it not be true that our neighbors look at us and say, those folks just like us. they just as divided as we are. they just as hateful as we are. They're just as violent in their speech as we are. They lie just like we do. They get on social media and say the same stuff we say. Let it be that those on the outside look at what is happening here and say there's something different. Why? Because we're walking in the good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <laughs> Pay attention to the text. He didn't just create the good work so that we could look and say, man, that's great, that we should walk in them. I'm going I'm to say that statement again, that we should walk in them. That is, that we should do them. That is, that we should follow along the path of those good works that God has prepared for us. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified. 
freely forever. One day he's coming back. Glorious day. The good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is the center. And so there's nothing novel about our commitment to reflect that in our life together as God's people. The good news has raised us from death to life. It has made us a display of the glory of God throughout the ages. And it has gifted us a great calling to live out God's good in our world. Praise God for the gospel. Praise God for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your people that this good news of the gospel, I pray that it would be the center of our lives. I pray that it would be the center of our individual lives, Lord, that we would walk in that truth, that we would believe it first and foremost, Lord, but then that we would walk in it in our lives day to day. And I pray that it would also be the center of our life together, of our corporate life, Lord, that the good news of the gospel would really be centered in all we believe and do here at New City Fellowship. I pray for your people to believe the gospel and to walk in it. And I pray, Lord God, that you would make us truly what the Scripture says the church is, a city set on a hill, that people would see the light of your glory being shown within this place, and that folk would come and say, what makes you all what you are? <laughs> and we can turn and tell them, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's the good news of Christ who died and rose again from the dead that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that this would be true about us, that we would be a gospel-centered church. and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.